Thank you for tuning into sermons from Liberty Baptist Church in Newport Beach, California. Our goal is to help you know God more and take the next step in your spiritual journey, no matter where you're at. If you have questions about God or about Liberty, you can connect with us at libertybaptistchurch.org. We pray that the Lord will use this message to be a help and encouragement in your life. Let's take our Bibles and go to Jeremiah chapter 20, if you will. Jeremiah chapter 20. It's been a joy and a privilege to be here today. And uh, always good to see God's people in God's house on a Sunday night. And glad that you're here. Jeremiah chapter 20. We're going to look at a number of verses. We'll read just one as our text and then uh, look at a few others here in and around chapter 20 of Jeremiah. Call your attention to verse number 9 of Jeremiah chapter 20. Jeremiah is speaking. Then I said, I will not make mention of him nor speak any more in his name. But his word was in mine heart as a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I was weary with forbearing, and I could not stay. No matter how hard man works at it, the world will never be a perfect place. Now, man works pretty hard at it. I mean, medically and socially, religiously, politically, We do our very best to try to create an environment in which to live where we can be happy, where we can uh, be productive in our work, where we can raise our families, and all those kinds of things that are important to us. But the world is never going to be a perfect utopia. Now, it once was. When God created the heavens and the earth, the Bible says on day six, God stood back and he saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. So at one time, this earth was a perfect place created by a perfect God. But we read a little further into the book of Genesis, and we come to chapter 3. Verse 1, the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And the serpent said unto the woman, Hath God said ye shall not eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden? And the woman said, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, God hath said... Ye shall not eat of it, neither shalt thou touch it, lest ye die. And the serpent said, Ye shall not surely die. For God doth know, in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof, and gave also to her husband with her, and he did eat. The eyes of them both were opened. They knew that they were naked. Adam and Eve sinned against God. They disobeyed his direct command. For in Genesis chapter 2, he said, Of all the trees in the garden, thou mayest freely eat. But of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, thou shalt not eat of it. From the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Well, Adam and Eve, they disobeyed that command. They sinned against God. And as a result, in Genesis 3, in verse 17, God said, Because thou hast eaten of the fruit of the tree, whereof I commanded thee, saying, Thou shouldest not eat, cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. 
You and I know tonight that all of the division and all of the distress and all of the disease and all of the devastation and destruction of life are just a result of sin. God placed a curse upon this earth because of sin. And as we look around today in 2021 and we look at all of the devastation, we look at all of the disease and and death and distress and all of these things, it's discouraging, isn't it? I mean, we look at life today and we look at the way things are in 2021 and we think, man, is anything ever going to be back to what I consider normal? Is anything going to go back to the way it was in the good old days or whatever we might refer to? You look around, it's a bit discouraging to see the chaos, the confusion, the uncertainty. It kind of reminds me when I was in college. There was hardly a chapel service my last two years in college where a preacher did not come and tell us that as a nation we would never make it to our 200th birthday. I mean, every chapel, every preacher would come and say, we're on a path to destruction in America. We're not going to last. We're going to destroy ourselves. And we will never live to July 4th, 1976. I believed it. And there was a lot of evidence that America was fast going in the wrong direction. I remember going to first grade. I didn't go to kindergarten. I grew up in Watertown, Wisconsin. Watertown, Wisconsin is the home of America's first kindergarten. You ever want to go there, you can go to the Octagon House, and just outside the Octagon House is a little building where the first kindergarten in America was ever conducted in 1848. When I went to school, they didn't have kindergarten. I'm older than you think. But I went to first grade, they didn't have kindergarten. And uh, first grade, second grade, third grade, fourth grade, every morning we'd walk in the classroom, and it wasn't long until the principal's voice would come over a speaker up in the corner of the classroom. And he would come on that speaker and he'd say, all right, boys and girls, I hope you're in your seats because I want to read to you from the Bible. And he would read a verse out of the Bible. And he would say, now, boys and girls, I want everybody to fold your hands, bow your heads and close your eyes because I'm going to pray and ask the Lord to give us a good day. And every morning, first, second, third, fourth grade in in that public school, our principal read the Bible and prayed for our day. I went to fifth grade, same school. Speaker was still in the corner, but it was only used for announcements because prayer and Bible reading had been taken out of the public school. It was now illegal to pray, except on test day, and read the Bible. And many thought this is the watershed moment in America. This is the moment that's going to turn our nation And then we saw in those 1960s the the rock music coming into our culture and right behind it the free sex movement and and things began to change in America. There was a lot of rebellion, a lot of anarchy that came into the 60s and early 70s, the Watts riots here in Los Angeles and and the Kent State University riots. And people began to think, wow, this is is trouble. This is not the way it was. And and America is fast going on a pace to destruction. And I remember those days. They were difficult days. I remember inflation. Oh, my. First car I ever bought with a loan, I paid 18.5% interest on the car loan. That seems just ridiculous today. Uh, The first house my wife never bought, we we paid 10.5% interest on the loan. 
The first month, we paid a total of 17 cents on the principal. I'll never forget that. I mean, inflation was just running wild. In, in the early 1970s, remember the gas shortages? Some of you remember those. Gas stations weren't open on Saturday and Sunday. No gas stations open because there wasn't enough gas. And so they were only open five days a week. Well, I was holding revival meetings in those days. And I would preach from Sunday to Friday at a church, and then we'd hook up our trailer and travel to the next church, and, and there were no gas stations open. I had two 20-gallon tanks of gas on my truck that I was pulling my trailer with and had, uh, had five 10-gallon uh, uh, five gas cans in the back of my truck full of gas. I had three 30-pound uh, 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 tanks of propane. I mean, we had 90 pounds of propane. If we would have been hit, we would have destroyed the world. I mean, we, we were a moving bomb up and down the highways. Amazing days. And I, I drank the Kool-Aid. I mean, I thought, this, we're not going to make it to 1976. We're, we're not going to see our 200th birthday in America. And I'm reminded of so many of those things today. As we look around and see the uncertainty and we wonder, uh, where is the consistency in our laws and, and, and in our government? And, and we look at religion floundering and economics on the brink and, and we see all these things and we get discouraged, we get disheartened. But could I invite you tonight to lift your eyes above the chaos and confusion and uncertainty and set your affection on things above, not on the things of the earth? Can I encourage you tonight to look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith? Can I encourage you that the Bible says, Thou keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed upon thee, because he trusteth in thee. Trust ye in the Lord forever, for the Lord Jehovah is everlasting strength. Now, Jeremiah is going through something very similar in chapter 20 to what we're going through tonight in 2021. And I want to make three observations from the life of Jeremiah that I believe can be an encouragement to us as we try to be faithful in this day that God has chosen for us to live in. First of all, I want you to observe with me a universal collapse. Now, Jeremiah, by the time we get to chapter 20, is not a young man anymore. He's been around the block a few times. This isn't his first roadhill, we would say. Jeremiah was alive during the time of Josiah, the king. You may remember Josiah, he came to the throne at the age of eight, just a boy. And God put him on the throne of Israel as king. And it wasn't an easy time to come to that throne. Jeremiah's father, Amnon, and his grandfather, Manasseh, had ruled the land for 57 years prior to Josiah, and had taken the nation away from the God of heaven, and they were following all kinds of idolatrous worship. By the time of Josiah, the, 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 the land was filled with groves and molten images and carved works. Everywhere you look, there was an idolatry worship. And Josiah comes to the throne at that moment, and the Bible says while he was yet young, in the eighth year of his reign, so as a 16-year-old, Josiah begins to seek after the God of David, his father. So instead of following his human heritage of Amnon and Manasseh, who've led the nation away from God, Josiah turns his attention to his spiritual father, his spiritual heritage through David. And, he, and, he, and he, the Bible says in, the tw in, in his 20th year, he decides we've got to get back to worship. We've got to get back to assembling as a people of God, we've got to worship the Lord. 
And so he takes some money out of the government treasury, and he appoints some workmen to go and repair and amend the house of the Lord. It was in shambles, hasn't been used for six decades. So this, this house of God is in terrible condition. So Josiah sends these workmen to repair and amend the house. Well, as they were doing so, they found a book. But they weren't sure what it was. So they took it to Shaphan, the scribe, and Shaphan reads this book, according to 2 Chronicles 34. And as Shaphan reads this book, he recognizes it. it is the law of God. It's the Old Testament Torah, as they called it then, the first five books of the Bible. And, and Shaphan takes this book of the law and reads it to King Josiah. And when Josiah heard the word of God read, the Bible says he rent his clothes, which was symbolic of his humility before God. And Josiah says, this is why we're in trouble. This is why our nation is a wreck. We've got to get back to God's word. So he calls the nation together, all of them, the men, the women, the children, the young, the old. He brings them all together and they stood and they read the word of God to the people. And upon the completion of that reading, Josiah stands and he says, now, what you've just heard is the way I'm going to live. And what you've just heard is the way I'm going to lead this nation. And, for the, and the people stood to it. They supported the words of their king. And for the next 31 years, Israel experiences one of the greatest revivals on record anywhere. Jeremiah lived through all of that. He saw that. But Jeremiah also lived long enough to see Josiah leave the throne. And the next king was Jehoiahaz, and then Jehoiada, and then Zedekiah. And these next three kings took the nation right back into idolatry, right back into false worship. And the whole time, Jeremiah, the prophet, he's crying out. He's saying, wait a minute, stop. Think about what you're doing. We've been down this road before, and it's not a good path. It's not the right way. You've got to come back. You've got to repent. You've got to turn back to God, or we're going to go through the same cycle again. He's crying out to them. In fact, in chapter 2 of Jeremiah, in verse 19, he says, Thy own wickedness hath, hath reproved thee. Thy own, thy own iniquity shall reprove thee. See, therefore, that it is a wicked thing and evil that thou hast forsaken the Lord thy God. In chapter 4, in verse 3, he says, break up your fallow ground. Take away the foreskins off of your hearts. He's telling the people, you've become desensitized. You're no longer tender to the word of God. You're selfish. You're thinking only of yourself, and you're going to be ruined. By the time he comes to chapter 4, in verse 22, he says, my people are foolish. They have no knowledge. They are sottish children. They are wise to do evil. But to do good, they have no knowledge. Well, when I read that, I think about today. Wise to do evil, but to do good, we have no knowledge. Boy, we're getting really good at corruption in America. We're getting even better at covering it up. But you ask the average person to quote John 3, 16, he goes, what? So by the time Jeremiah comes to chapter 7 and verse 3, he says, amend your ways and your doings. 
In chapter 8, he calls out to the leadership of the land, both spiritual and political, and he says the wise men are ashamed. They are dismayed and taken. Lo, they've rejected the word of the Lord and what wisdom is in them. By the time he comes to chapter 9 and verse 1, he says, Oh, that my head were waters and my eyes a fountain of tears that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. Now in chapter 13, he predicts the captivity. Chapter 13 and verse 19, he says, the cities of the south shall be shut up and none shall open them. Judah shall be carried away captive. It shall be wholly carried away. The Babylonish captivity is coming. A universal collapse. In fact, if you look up at chapter 19, just prior to our chapter tonight in verse 15, He says, thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, behold, I will bring upon this city and upon all her towns and all the evil that I have pronounced against it because they have hardened their necks. They might not hear my words. He said, we've pushed the envelope too far. We've stepped over a line. God is now going to allow us to collapse. Verse four of chapter 20, thus saith the Lord, behold, I will make thee a terror to thyself and to all thy friends and they shall fall by the sword of their enemies, and thine eyes shall behold it, and I will give all Judah into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he shall carry them captive into Babylon and shall slay them with the sword. They might have thought, oh, this can't happen to us. Uh, We're secure. We've got our comforts. We've got our defense systems. We're going to be okay. Notice what he says in verse 5. I will deliver all the strength of this city. Your, your, your defense systems, your military muscle, forget it, it's gone. He says, and all the labors thereof, your jobs, your employment, your way to make a living, it's gone. And all the precious things thereof, your refinement, your culture, your entertainment, your sports, it's gone. And all the treasures of the kings of Judah, all your bank accounts, your reservoirs of of finance, your retirement, it's gone. A universal collapse. Now, none of this surprises Jeremiah. He's been predicting it. He's been warning. He's seen the handwriting on the wall, and he said, this is coming. And so as the nation now is taken into captivity, Jeremiah is not surprised. But what he is surprised about, number two, is an unrelenting criticism. You see, Jeremiah is not surprised by the universal collapse of his nation. They have turned a deaf ear to God. They have gone away from the Lord for years. And finally, they've come to that line where God is going to let them be destroyed. And that doesn't surprise Jeremiah. He's seen it coming. But what he didn't expect was that he was going to be the one to get blamed for it. An unrelenting criticism. Look at verse number one of chapter 20. Now Pashur, the son of Emer, the priest, who was also chief governor in the house of the Lord, heard that Jeremiah prophesied these things. Then Pashur smote Jeremiah the prophet and put him in the stocks that were in the high gate of Benjamin, which was by the house of the Lord. So we read there in verse one that Pashur is a priest. We already know that Jeremiah is a prophet. 
Now, the priest and the prophet of the Old Testament, they, they certainly had different roles as far as what God had them to do uh, in his economy of, 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 of religion, so to speak. But if you were to put the priests and the prophets on a flowchart in the Old Testament, they really were somewhat equal. In other words, as far as their authority over the people, the priest and the prophet were very similar. In fact, they didn't have a, a, a written Bible in those days. They did not have a complete Bible as we would have it today. So God revealed his word to the people through a priest or a prophet. He would speak through the priest or through the prophet, sometimes through a king, but most often through a priest or a prophet. So in a sense, they were somewhat equal, if you please, on a, like a corporate flowchart. So Pashur, this priest, he hears Jeremiah's message as he comes into his territory, this message of doom and gloom, and Pashur doesn't like it. And so he takes Jeremiah, and the Bible says in verse 2, he smote him. Now the word smote there is the Hebrew word for to strike with the hand or with a blunt object. So there's a physical punishment here of the prophet. Then it says in verse 2 that he put Jeremiah in stocks. He put his feet into stocks and set him at the high gate of Benjamin. The high gate of Benjamin was a place where people went in and out of the city. So now here's Jeremiah. He's been removed from his position, so to speak. He's been, he's been embarrassed. He's been defamed. He's been, he's been degraded. He's been physically abused. He's placed in stocks so that everybody can pass by and laugh at him and deride him and make fun of him. And by the way, all of this is illegal. Pasher does not have the authority to do this. In the Old Testament, there were prophets who prophesied a false message. And there was a way to deal with them. In the Old Testament, if someone stood up and said, Thus saith the Lord, and they, and they prophesied something that wasn't true, someone could accuse them of a false message and take it to the high priest. The high priest would convene a group of priests and they would discuss the message of this prophet. And if it was deemed that it was a false message, that priest was removed from his office. But none of that's being followed here. There's no laws or customs or anything being followed here. This is one man, Pashur, who has some power, has some control, has some office. And he says, I'm going to take care of this. And he, he smites Jeremiah and puts him in stocks and sets him in a public place to be derided. Unrelenting criticism. And Jeremiah doesn't understand. This wasn't in his job description. He couldn't find this in his contract. In fact, look down at verse 7. He says, O Lord, thou hast deceived me, and I was deceived. Thou art stronger than I, and hast prevailed. I am in derision daily, everyone mocketh me. For since I spake, I cried out, I cried violence and spoil, because the word of the Lord was made a reproach unto me and a derision daily. Jeremiah is saying, Lord, you lied to me. You, you told me to preach your message. You told me to stand up and say, thus saith the Lord, to warn the people, but you didn't tell me that I was the one that was going to get heat for it. I don't understand. 
you, you deceive me. Jeremiah hands in his resignation in verse 9. He says, Then I said, I will not make mention of him, nor speak any more in his name. Jeremiah says, I'm done. I'm out. This isn't fair. This isn't right. This isn't legal. God, you, I don't know what you're doing, but you're not looking out for me. I've been faithful. I've just done what you said. So, Lord, if this is the way it is, I quit. You see, Jeremiah did not have the opportunity, as we do tonight, to go into the New Testament and read the words of Paul, who said, All who live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Jeremiah didn't have the chance to read Peter's words where he said, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial that shall try you as though some strange thing happened unto you. Jeremiah didn't get to read what Jesus said in John chapter 18. If the world hate you, you know it hated me before it hated you. He didn't have that. So Jeremiah says, I'm out. And you know the devil loves it. When God's people quit. The devil loves it when the church doors are closed. He loves it when the pews are empty. He loves it when the parking lot is empty. You see, the devil thinks if he can bring enough persecution, if he can bring just enough pressure on God's people, he can stop the message of God. The devil thinks if I can just bring enough, enough problem, enough, enough heartache, enough difficulty to the people of God, they'll quit. God's work will end. But the devil has a very bad memory. Because I want you to see thirdly tonight, not only a universal collapse, not only an, un, an unrelenting criticism, but I want you to see in Jeremiah an underlying condition. Look again carefully at verse 9. Then I said, I will not make mention of him, nor speak any more in his name. Period. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I don't know how much time passes between that period and the next word. Maybe it was just a few seconds. Maybe it was a few moments. I tend to think it was several days. I believe that from the rest of the verse. I believe when Jeremiah put that period there, he put the pen down, closed the book, slid his chair back from the desk, walked out the room, and closed the door. He said, I'm done. But aren't you glad the verse doesn't end there with that period? I don't know how much time went by. Look at the rest of the verse. But his word was in mine heart as a burning fire shut up in my bones. And I was weary with forbearing and I could not stay. 
I tend to think it was several days because he got weary of this. It kept burning in his heart. This, this fire kept burning, and he said, I, I can't stay over here. I, I got to go back. There's another chapter to write. There's more to the story. And Jeremiah goes back into that room, and he opens up that book, and he takes the pen, and he begins to write again. And ladies and gentlemen, you and I that are saved tonight, we have a fire inside of us. It's called the Holy Spirit of God. When you got saved, the Holy Spirit took up residence inside of you. And he never leaves us. He never forsakes us. He is there regardless of the conditions, regardless of the circumstances and the chaos and the confusion. He's inside of us. And 1 John 4 says, greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world. And everything else in the world. There's something inside the child of God that says we can't quit. We can't close the doors of the church. We've got to assemble. We've got to sing. We've got to have preaching. We've got to keep worshiping. We've got to support missionaries. We've got to keep reaching our city for Christ. There's a fire inside of us, and it won't go out. See, the devil got pretty happy that day when they sealed that stone on the tomb outside of Jerusalem, set that centurion there to guard that tomb, Boy, the devil, he thought, man, this is awesome. I've stopped him now. But he forgot that behind that stone was the very one who said, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Oh, the devil was happy. He kicked up his heels with glee that day when they drugged the apostle Paul outside the city and left him for dead. And the devil thought, we'll hear this babbler no more. All of a sudden, that body began to move. The apostle Paul stood up and he shook the dust off of him. And he said, though I preach the gospel, I have nothing to glory of. For necessity is laid upon me. Ye woe is unto me if I preach not the gospel of Jesus Christ. One day they looked at Peter and John and they said, You will never speak the name Jesus Christ ever again. You got it? <laughs> Peter writes, We could not but speak the things that we'd both seen and heard. You see, Amos said, The lion hath roared, who can but fear? The Lord hath spoken, who can but prophesy? Ladies and gentlemen, we have a message. We have the truth. We have everlasting life to give to this world. We cannot close the doors. We cannot stop assembling. We cannot stop preaching the word of God. We have a fire inside of us that will not go out. I remember July 4th, 1976, pretty well. It was a Sunday. I started a revival meeting that morning in El Paso, Texas. It was a good morning. Good crowd. Good decisions at the close of the service. That afternoon went by quickly, a little lunch with the pastor. and I went back to the church. They had a little room I was staying in there at the church. Got ready for the evening service, and we had a good crowd back on Sunday night, a great spirit. But I, my heart was heavy because I thought, this is my last day. I don't know what's going to happen, but America's going to be destroyed tonight. We're not going to live till midnight. We're not going to have religious freedom after midnight. Something's going to happen. I believed it. I was told in college that all the interstate highways were built for the military tanks. 
And those walls at the exits, that was so they could close off every exit. Make it a military state. That, that's what I was told. And I believed it. Made sense to me. I mean, we were going the wrong direction. I remember that service ended. People left and I went back to that room and I put my Bible away and changed my clothes and I decided to go for a walk. I began to walk the streets of El Paso that night. If you've ever been to El Paso, you know it's a very long city east to west. It's extremely long. It runs along our Mexican border there for a number of miles, much bigger now than in 1976. You go to that city now, it'll take you about an hour and 10 minutes to cross that city in speed limit traffic. It's amazingly long, not very wide north to south. The huge city of Juarez just over the border on the other side. I began to walk those streets and pray. I said, Lord, we don't deserve any more time. We really don't. We've blown it. Our nation was founded upon you. That Mayflower, in the very sails of the Mayflower, were the words, in God we trust. We've forgotten about that. We wrote our Declaration of Independence. We said one nation under God, but Lord, I don't think we're under your control anymore. Lord, we deserve destruction. But I said, Lord, I'm just getting started. I'm just a young guy. I'd sure like to have a chance at this. I mean, I, I know you're displeased, and I know you have a right to to end the freedoms in America and wipe us off the map. But Lord, I'd sure like to hold some more revivals. Uh, my wife and I, we're just a couple of years into marriage. We'd like to have some kids and maybe see if we could raise them for your glory. God, could you give us a little more time? I just talked to him like that, prayed and cried. I walked and I walked. And I looked at my watch and it was 12.05. And I said, hey, it, it's, it's July 5th, and we're still here. I'm still here. We, we, we made it. And then I thought, yeah, but this is central time. God might be on mountain time. I better keep praying. And so I walked some more, and I prayed some more. And, and 1 o'clock came, and 2 o'clock, and 3 o'clock, and 4 o'clock. And when I came back to that church, just as the sun was coming up over that eastern horizon on El Paso, I did not hear an audible voice. But I know what God told me that morning. He said, son, you just be faithful with every day that I give to you and let me take care of the calendar. Could I invite you tonight, despite the chaos, the confusion, the uncertainty of tomorrow, just be faithful with what you know is right from this book. God has the calendar already marked for his return. God has the calendar all set. He knows exactly what's taking place, and the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord. He's got it all under control. All we're going to be accountable for when it's all over is whether or not we were faithful with every day he gives us. I still walk some streets. I walked a few of your streets this afternoon. I just thought about all these corporate buildings I was walking around, thinking, Lord, we have a lot in this country, but we don't have you. But Lord, give us more time. 
Give us another day, another year for revival. I don't pray that prayer so much for me anymore. I've had my chance. I pray it for these young people in this room. I pray it for my grandkids. I pray it for those students up at West Coast. I pray that God would give us a space of grace to see him work in a mighty way in our day for his glory. We gotta be faithful. May I invite you tonight to just be faithful. And when it's all said and done, that's all that's gonna matter is whether or not as stewards we were found. Thank you for listening to Messages from Liberty. Tune in next week for more Bible teaching or subscribe on iTunes to stay up to date with our current series.